Hey, glad you're here again. Um, have you ever had a day where like you stand in front of the mirror and it seems like forever that you stand in front of the mirror, but no matter how long you stand in front of the mirror, it's just not right? You know what I'm talking about? Like you just can't get it right. It's probably a little bit more common with ladies than it is with men. Um, but we all stand in front of the mirror. At some point every day, you stand in front of the mirror, you look at what you look like, and you try to fix what you need to fix, right? I looked up this week how long the average person stands looking in a mirror, okay? So ladies, the average American woman spends 55 minutes a day in front of a mirror. 50, someone said, that's it? Uh, <laughs> I, was, I don't know who said it, but I think it was a guy, so he's like, ladies, get more in front of that mirror. Okay, um, so uh, yeah, ladies spend 55 minutes in front of a mirror. Men, average man spends 22 minutes in front of a mirror. 22 minutes. Now here's the deal. I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt without knowing some of you, know some of you, don't know all of you, I know exactly how long you stand in front of a mirror, even today. And here's the answer. It's not rocket science. It's super simple. You stood in front of a mirror as long as it took, right? I mean, you stand in front of a mirror and you do whatever it is. So some days that's 30 minutes. And you go, oh, this looks good. This is acceptable for what I'm going to. Some days you're like, I don't care. I'm rolling out of bed. I don't care what I look like. I'm walking to class, you know, and I don't care what I look like. So you spend like two minutes in front of a mirror that day, right? Some days maybe you're going to something special or you need to look special for something. You spend 90 minutes in front of a mirror. You just spend as much time as you need to in front of a mirror. And the, the question is, and this is so simple, and at first you're going to sit here and go, is this really what you're bringing tonight? Like, this is so simple. We're in college. We know this. But the reason you stand in front of a mirror, the reason I stand in front of a mirror is simply this. We cannot take our eyes out of our sockets and do like a 360 of our body. We can't see everything in our physical appearance. So we need a help, right? So say you eat at Chipotle, love Chipotle, you go to Chipotle, and after you finish eating, you go, I think I might have something in my teeth. What are you going to do? You're going to go to a mirror, you're going to look, you're going to see, is there something in there, right? Or if you're like me, you got poofy hair, right? This, I put stuff in my hair, that's, it's not style, it's my hair's crazy, and if I don't put something, I look like a wild man. So you got poofy hair, and you spend time in the mirror trying to get this one piece of hair to go down, right? You spend as long as it takes to get the job done. Or if you buy new jeans, you're like, let me do a 360 in front of the mirror, because I'm not quite sure that I took off that one long sticker that goes down the side that says, hey, this is how big your jeans are, right? I don't want that on me while I walk around in public. Now, listen, if you don't have a mirror, here's what we do. We have people outside of us, other people, who can act as mirrors, right? So say you're walking along campus or you're talking with people and your friend comes up and he goes, hey, I don't think you know this, but you got something in your front teeth. Like, I don't know where you ate, I don't know what it is, but it's big, get it out. You go, oh my gosh, thanks. And you go to the bathroom, you try to get it out. Or your friend can go, hey, your hair, your makeup, whatever it is, you need to fix it, it doesn't look very good. Or, hey, did you buy new jeans? Yeah, I bought new jeans. They look good, right? No, I know they're new jeans because they have the sticker on the back. Like, go take that off. Now, here's the deal. When somebody tells you, when somebody tells you your fly is down, or there's something in your teeth, or there's a sticker on your pants, or whatever it is, that is embarrassing. I don't care how good of a friend it is. It's embarrassing when somebody says, hey, you don't know this, but you don't look all that great. That's what they're saying. Like, go fix what I'm pointing out. Like, that's embarrassing, but it beats the alternative, right? If no one tells you, then you walk around the whole day looking that way. You're seen by a lot of people. You get home and you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've looked like this the whole day, right? 
Here's the truth. It'll be on the screen. Super basic. We're going to start here. Physically, there are things you cannot see about yourself. We all get that. And again, if you're, you're going, man, I, I, this is not very complex. We know the point of mirrors and people telling us stuff. But just focus. We all can agree on this, right? That physically, there's something, there's things about you that you can't see yourself. And so you need a mirror. You need something to show you or you need a person. Now, if this is true, let me tell you that it actually goes deeper than this. Put up the next screen. Relationally, emotionally, spiritually, there are things you cannot see about yourself. Now, none of those things show up in a mirror. This will help your physical appearance. This can't help any of those areas. But from time to time, and in fact, more often than you think or know, you need somebody to be a mirror and come up to you and say, I'm not sure you know this. I'm not judging you. I love you. I think a lot of you, but I'm not sure you know this, but there's, not some, there's something that's not right. There's something that's not right. And I don't know if you know how you look right now, but you might want to work on this. We need mirrors because just like we can't see ourselves physically, there are things we can't see about ourselves relationally, emotionally, or spiritually. So for maybe for some of you, right, maybe it's relationally. Let's just take that one. Maybe some of you have dated or are dating a guy or a girl, and you think they're great. You're like, this is a, they're just awesome. I love them. They're great. They do everything right. But all of your friends see what you can't see. You ever been in this situation on either side? All of your friends see what you can't see, and they're like, you're dating a psychopath. Like, this person's a crazy person, and they're going to hurt you. But they're totally and completely blind to it, right? It's because you can't see everything about yourself. Or for others of you, maybe you got a massive anger problem. You got a massive anger problem. And you write it off and you excuse it because you're like, well, everyone gets angry. Everyone gets angry. Jesus got angry. Didn't he like flip over tables? So I'm being just like Jesus when I punch holes in walls. Like, you know, it's just like Jesus. And everyone else knows this. No, man, you can't see what we see. You have a problem. Like you are getting on the verge of out of control. You have a problem. You're excusing it. You're writing it off. But here's ultimately, you're blind to it. It's a person being a mirror to you. Or I'll give you another example. Say you have insecurity problems. How does that show up? Like, how can we see an insecurity problem? I'll give you several ways. Insecurity problems show up this way. If you love to gossip, usually, nine times out of ten, you're a terribly insecure person. In fact, I almost have to bite my tongue when I hear anybody gossip because I want to look at them and go, you're pathetic. Because don't you have a life? Why are you so concerned with theirs? Go live your life. That's an insecurity issue. Or if you love to stir up drama, in all of your friend groups, if you're always the source of drama, that's usually insecurity. You're always stirring things up. Now listen, you can turn a blind eye to it. You don't see it. You just think this is the way I live. You need a mirror. You need someone to say, do you know this is how you look to the world? Like, do you see what you're doing? Like, you're wearing everyone out, all of us. Like, you gotta have somebody there to be a mirror. Say so you're messing with something addictive right? And to you, you go, oh, no one knows about it. It happens behind closed doors. No one knows. It's not that big of a deal. But friends and family are going, look, I might not know everything that's going on, but I know this, you're changing. That's somebody saying, hey, I don't know if you see yourself, but you got a thing here. 
And I don't know what's all of what's going on. I'm not judging you. I think you're great. I love you. In fact, the reason I'm doing this is because I love you. You need to see what we're seeing because I don't think you're seeing what we're seeing. Because just like you can't see yourself physically, you also can't see yourself emotionally, relationally, or spiritually. Finally, if maybe you're somebody, this always happens at the beginning of a new year, you're circling a new group of friends, and you go, man, I really like these people. They're fun. I have fun with them. But everyone else who knows you and has known you for a while is watching you and they're going, man, you're changing and not in a good way. Do you see this? Like they're trying to be a mirror to you. Here's the deal. We need people in our lives who will be mirrors to us. We need to have guts, number one, to be a mirror to somebody and go, look, I'm not judging you. I love you. I care about you. But do you see what we're seeing And we need people who will do that to us. You know what I think is really funny and interesting? It's this. When I read you this list, what I just read you, right? If you have relational problems, you're dating a psychopath, or you got massive anger problems, or you got insecurity problems, gossip and drama, or you got addictive stuff in your life, or you got a new group of friends that are changing you. You know what you hear when you hear that list? In fact, you hear this almost every time in church someone reads a list of sins. You know what you hear in your mind? or how you interpret that list, you go, oh, oh, Tim's talking about that person over there. Tim's talking about that person. Oh, Tim's referencing them. Let me tell you, I'm talking about you. I'm not talking about them. Why is it in church when we read a list like that, we, our mind automatically goes to every single person in this room that needs to hear it, but it never talks about us. You know why that is? Here, it'd be on the screen. That's this. We are so blind to our own stuff that we don't even know that we are blind to it at all. That's how blind we are. When we hear a list like that, we can think about everyone else, but we never think about ourselves. We can picture a person and go, oh, he's talking about somebody else. No, we're talking about you. We all are blind. In fact, we're so blind that you can't even see that you're blind. We gotta have mirrors. And if it's true for you, I promise you it's true for me. I got five guys in my life, five in my life, And it's usually I call them because there's a problem. I'm having an issue with somebody or something and I lay it out for them. And every single one of them at the end of that conversation will say, now, Tim, let me tell you this. Here's where you're wrong. And they're being a mirror and they're holding it up and they're going, I don't know that you see this and I think you're great, but you need to see who you really are and how you look like to the world. We have to have mirrors, right? We got to have mirrors. There's a story in the Bible that talks about this specifically. Guy in the Old Testament famous guy, does some really terrible things, really terrible things. And for a while, he thought he got away with it. In fact, he had a plan. If you were here last week, we talked about how Jesus talked about the cleaning of the outside of a cup, but leaving the inside nasty. This guy was a master of cleaning the outside of the cup. He thought the world doesn't know what I've done and I'm going to get away with it. But God loved him enough to say, I'm going to send you a mirror because you don't see how far you've gone and you don't see where you're going. So I'm gonna send you a mirror. It's gonna be in 2 Samuel 12, but before we get to the scripture, I gotta set up the story because there's a long backstory. 2 Samuel 12 is where we'll pick up. Here's the guy, a guy by the name of King David. King David, very famous individual in the Old Testament. But here's the things you should know about him. Number one, he was picked by God to be king. Picked. He did not earn it. He did not do anything to deserve it. He was picked by God. In other words, he was blessed by God. This is true for all of us in this room. You are blessed and loved by God. God loves you. He blesses you. He cares about you. It was true for David. David was picked to be king. Before he was king, he was a shepherd. 
That's all he was, was a shepherd. He watched sheep for his father, but he made the best use of his time. While he was out in the wilderness with the sheep, he spent hours with God, hours with God. He wrote poems to God. He sang songs about God. He just spent tons of time with God. Consequently, he's one of the closest individuals to God that we see in the Bible. In fact, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. He's the only character that gets that description. So he spent a whole lot of time. He was very close to so two things. He was blessed by God, loved by God, and he was very close to God. Now, many of you in this room, many of you in this room, now I mean not all, but many would say this. At one point in time in my life, I was close to God. You can look back over your history. You think about that one year or that one summer or that one spring break or that one whatever. Man, I just felt God and his presence and I was close to God. David has the same experience, but then flash forward, David eventually becomes king. And when he becomes king, he grows complacent and he begins to drift. He had been super close, but now he's drifting away from God. But here's the deal. There are things that you can't see about yourself relationally, emotionally, or spiritually. He was blind to his own drift. He didn't even know he was drifting off course. And this is true for a lot of you. You're loved by God, blessed by God. At one point in time, you were close to God. And right now, today, you wake up and you go, how on earth did I get where I am? Because I don't feel like I have a connection with God at all. I've drifted so far away from God. It's the story of King David. You're in good company. Story of me. We're all in the same boat, right? So David becomes king. He starts to drift. Now, here's where the story picks up. One day, he's in his palace. And he's walking around the balcony of his palace, hanging out. All of his men, all of his armies were off fighting a war. Now, kings were supposed to be with their men when the wars were going on. But David chose to sit this one out, chose to stay home. Which, by the way, side note, sin often strikes when we're in the places we shouldn't be. He should have been out. He shouldn't have been at the palace. But he's walking around the balcony. He's looking over the city of Jerusalem. And maybe a house over, maybe two houses over, somewhere nearby the palace, close enough to where he could make the person out. He sees a woman bathing on her roof. He's like, man, this woman looks good, right? So he calls his servant. He says, hey, hey, man, who's that woman right there? And this is what his servant said. Her name is Bathsheba. Her name is Bathsheba. She's the wife. End of discussion, right? At that point, that's where he goes, oh, wife? Okay, never mind. Cool, I'll just go inside. She's the wife of a guy named Uriah. And oh, by the way, Uriah's in your army. He's off at war right now. Now, this is what makes the story just kind of, even more like, ugh, is that what David did next, he did to one of his own men who was suffering and fighting and bleeding and, and, and risking his life for him. So David says, you know what? Go get her. Go get her. So the servant goes and gets her, brings Bathsheba to the palace, and David and Bathsheba have sex. Now, listen, here's the deal. Bathsheba, off the hook on this one. We don't put any blame on Bathsheba. Why? Because at this point in time, there was no saying no to the king. She doesn't, this is a power imbalance moment. She doesn't have the ability to say no. So she's off the hook, okay? This is on David. This is not on her. So they have sex. She leaves. He's like, no big deal. Outside of the cup looks good. The only person that knows is me, her, and the servant that got her, and he's not talking, and neither is she. Outside of the cup is clean. No one knows what's going on. Thinks everything's fine. Until he gets the oh no moment. He gets word later on from Bathsheba, I'm pregnant he goes, oh, shoot. Well, this is not good. So again, we got a moment here to, are we going to clean the inside or are we just going to polish up the outside? And what he chooses to do is he says, okay, here's, here's the plan. I got a plan. Um, he tells his guys, go get Uriah from the battlefield and bring him here. And he's going to give me a report. 
So Uriah comes in, and David and him talk, and he's like, hey, give me a report. And Uriah talks to him about it. He's like, that sounds great. Hey, man, go home. Enjoy the evening with your wife. Wink, wink, right? Like, go spend some time with your wife, right? Because that will solve all my problems, because y'all will sleep together, and then no one will think it was me, and you won't know, and we'll be fine. But Uriah says, no, I can't do that. My men are out in the field. They're uncomfortable. Who would I be to go sleep in my bed? I'll sleep on the courtyard out here. David goes, shoot, this is not working. So the next day, he's got a better idea. He goes, I'm going to get Uriah drunk. Because if Uriah gets drunk, he'll go home, have sex with his wife, bing, bang, boom. Here we go. It's all problems are solved, right? Gets Uriah drunk, tries to send him home, and Uriah says, no, I'm not going. My men are out in the field. It's not right for me to be at home in bed. David's like, well, man, I don't know what else to do at this point. So what he decides to do, he said, I'm going to send Uriah back, but I'm going to send him with a message to the commanding officer of the army. And the message read to the commanding officer of the army, when Uriah gets to the front lines, get into battle and then have all of your men withdraw and leave Uriah by himself. And so Uriah, not knowing any of this, was left on a battlefield for a king who was having sex with his wife and was killed by the Philistine army. At this point, here's what we can say about David. He's committed adultery and he's committed murder. This, ready? This from a man who had been picked by God to be king, loved, blessed, close to God, but had drifted and hadn't seen it. Now here in his mind, he's going, great, problem solved. He allows Bathsheba to mourn for a little bit. Then he brings her in. He marries her. Now everything's good. And in his mind, he goes, the outside of the cup is clean. No one knows what I did. It's my secret. I'll take it to the grave. Who cares? We're fine. Except God goes, "Uh uh-uh. I love you too much to allow you to stay where you are. I love you too much to allow you to stay where you are. So I'm going to send to you a mirror and he is going to confront you with where you are because you are so blind to where you are that you can't even see it. And that's where we pick up the story. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse one, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Who sent Nathan? The Lord. Nathan didn't do this. This wasn't Nathan's idea. By the way, this whole phrase, we'll get to this in a minute. This whole phrase, only God can judge me. Oh, get off that junk. Come on. God sent Nathan to David. God works through people to speak truth to people. Sometimes you need somebody to, not to judge you or condemn you, but to show you the truth. It's not judgment when someone says, here's the truth and holds up a mirror. That's not judgment. That's you looking at the ugliness of you, right? So he sends Nathan to David. What happens? When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town. Kind of sounds like, oh, he's drawn up a story that kind of mimics real life, right? One rich, the other poor. Sounds like a king and a soldier. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. In other words, the rich man had plenty to choose from. David, you could have had any woman you wanted, and you took the one that one man had. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now you go, okay, that's weird. Okay, yeah, it's weird. But all to say, he loved the sheep. Okay, he loved the sheep. I think it is weird to sleep with the live sheep. But anyways, that's just me. All right, so he loved the sheep. 
Now, at this point in the story, I really believe, and I don't know this for sure, but I really believe that David is leaning forward on his throne. I think David is wrapped up in this story going, ooh, I like this story. Tell me more. Why? Because of David's background. What was David before he was king? A shepherd. Shepherd. So he knows what it is to care for a lamb. So David's leaning forward. Oh, I want to hear more. Here's what happens. Verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man. By the way, hospitality is a big deal. The rich man has to take care of this traveler. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to join him. In other words, I got plenty, but why use what I have? I want what I don't have. So instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. That's a sanitized version. That's the English translation. If you read the Hebrew version, it's a little bit more graphic. The word is slaughtered. He went, grabbed the lamb from the poor man's house, brought it to his house where he has plenty, takes the lamb, puts it down, grabs the tuft of hair at the top of the lamb's head, pulls its head back, takes a knife, slits its throat, skins it, cooks it, serves it. He's got plenty. He doesn't need this, but he does it anyway. Now, at this point, David is going, ooh, and David's going to react. Look at what happens in verse 5. David burned with anger. He burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, and he's going to regret these words in the next few seconds, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. (laughs) You just sealed your own fate, David. You just spoke the condemnation on yourself. He says, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Now, right here is where I think we need to stop because I think there's a great lesson for you. And if it's not for you, it's for sure for me. Okay? Here's a great lesson. A principle comes to light here. David's anger was 100% right. In that moment, David's anger was 100% right. It's a terrible story. It's right. And you might say, but Tim, it might be right, but it's hypocritical. Sure, I'll give you that. His anger was right. It was also hypocritical, but it was right. Right? Here's the deal. Why was he so angry in that moment? We know what Nathan's doing. He's setting David up. He's going to say, hey, this is on you, man. This, this whole story was about you the whole time. We know this. Why was he so angry? Here's why he was angry. It'll be on the screen. This is true for you and me too. Ready? Our sin always looks worse on other people. Notice the first two words of that sentence. Our sin. Or I could change it to your sin always looks worse on other people. David's anger was right. What he was blind to was the fact that this whole story was a setup on him and all that story was about him and it was really about his sin. But he could identify his sin in somebody else and our sin in somebody else's life always looks worse. See, we excuse our stuff or we turn a blind eye to it. But when we see our stuff over here, oh, let me give you some examples. You ever met somebody who has a terrible attitude? You go, man, this person's got a terrible attitude. I can't, they're just so awful. I just can't believe they act that way. Do you ever back up from that condemnation and ask yourself this question? Do I have bad attitudes? Like, why am I condemning them? Or how about this one? Anger. You see anger in somebody, you go, man, what an idiot. He looks like an idiot. 
So stupid. You're overreacting. Back up from that. Do you do that? Here's the best one. I love this because I hear it often. Like, my pet peeve is when people are liars. Like, I hate when people lie to me, and when you lie, I am done. Really? Really? Let's hold off on the condemnation and ask yourself this question. So do you lie? Do you lie? I guarantee you, you lie. And yet you hate it so much when you see it in somebody else. Is the anger right? Yes. Is it hypocritical? Absolutely it is. Why? Our sin always looks worse on somebody else. I can go on and on. The way you treat people, you see somebody treat people the way you treat people, yeah, that's terrible. Gossip, somebody gossips about you around town or around campus, saying something that either isn't true, is true, or rumor, slander, whatever it is, and you hear back and you're like, I can't believe this person's talking behind my back. Back up, when you start saying that, I wanna look at you and go, so you should stop gossiping yourself then. How about that? It's pretty simple, isn't it? If we hate something in another person, why is it as in us? Here's why, because we're blind. And we have to have somebody go, I know, in fact, David, you're right, he should die, and here you go. Don't you see it's in you too? It's in me. Oh man, I can condemn a lot of people for a lot of sins, but I have to constantly back up from that condemnation and go, but is that in me? And if it is, I need to shut my mouth and fix me. That's what I need to do. I'm not supposed to worry so much about you. I'm supposed to worry about me. That's the only person I can control in this life. So David sees this. We'll go back to the text, verse five. David burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. And then here comes the hammer, verse seven. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Not David, you're the man. No, not that version of you're the man. <laughs> no, David, you are the man. Don't you see? And you can read the whole speech. It follows. We're not going to read it. But here's what he's saying. Don't you see, David? That thing you just hated? That thing you're condemning? I think you're blind to it. I'm not trying to judge you. In fact, David, I think you're a great king and I want you to be a great king. You being a great king makes our nation a great nation. This is not judgment. It's not condemnation. I want you to be great, but don't you see? This is in you. Let me hold up the mirror to you because ultimately, David, if you keep going down this road, you're so blind, you don't know you're drifting. If you keep going down this road, you're gonna make decision after decision and deal with consequence after consequence and you are not ready for what's coming for you. Don't you see? This is who you are. Are. See, David thought, if I just clean the outside of the cup, fix everything, I'll get away with everything. But ultimately, here's the deal. Nathan was sent as a mirror to say, no, David, this is you. This is you. You know, last week we talked about cleaning the outside of the cup, the way we live. This is the way we live typically that we go, Jesus says this, that we go, man, if I make this outside look good, I don't have to worry about the inside. But what Nathan was saying is, David, you haven't got away with anything. God sees what's in here. I know what's in here. You know what's in here. It's time to fix what's in here. Um, ultimately, here's what I want to end with. A couple of concluding thoughts. David believed a lie that I think a lot of us believe. In fact, I think this is one of the biggest lies in Christianity right now that a lot of people believe. And it might sound confusing to you at first, but hear me out. This is all the lie most of us believe. It'll be on the screen. The lie. My faith 
is personal and private. That's a lie. My faith, my walk with God is both personal and private. What that means is this. What the relationship that I have with God, that's just between me and him. In other words, you stay out of it. Don't come in here telling me what I need to do. You stay out of it. This is just between me and God. My sin, my struggles, that's between me and God. Only God can judge me. You get it tattooed. Only God can judge me. Stay out of my business because you believe the lie that David believes, which is my walk with God is both personal and private. Here's the truth. I'll give you the first part. Your faith is personal. It's absolutely personal. What I mean by that is this. Every single one of you must come to a point in your life when you make a personal decision. You actually have to make a decision on what you're going to do with Jesus. Every single human being has to make that decision. Are you going to follow him and put your faith and trust in him, or are you going to go it on your own? That's your choice. In other words, one day you will stand before the throne of heaven, you will be judged, and I promise you I will not be by your side because I will not be allowed to be by your side. I cannot get you in. Your grandma, your mom, your dad, nobody else can get you in. You're going to be standing there completely by yourself. Your faith is personal, but your faith was never meant to be private. There's a difference. It's not private. In other words, what I'm saying is this. When I look at the, the crowd that comes to the bridge, here's what I know, just by your attendance. And you might say, well, that's not true, and that's okay if you're just checking us out. But for most of you, I think it is true. I think your attendance signals to me that you care at least a little bit about growing closer to God. You might not know what that means yet. You might be figuring out, answering questions. That's all fine. But you care even a little bit about trying to go closer to God. Because otherwise you wouldn't be here. There's plenty of things you can do on a Tuesday night that are probably, I don't know if they're more fun, but there's something else to do, right? You could be anywhere else. You're here. So if you care at all about growing closer to God, or if in your heart you go, my heart desires to be happy, joyous, and free. I want peace. I want serenity. I want to know God and be at peace and be totally at ease in my life and know that I'm okay. If that's you, here's what I would tell you. You cannot do that on your own. You simply cannot do it on your own. You have to do that in community. Your faith is personal. It's not private. You have to join together with other believers. That's been God's plan from the very beginning. Ultimately, here's what we want for you. We want you to get in a circle. We're convinced of this, that your life will never change sitting in a row. I, honestly, you know, one of the most defeating things about being a guy who preaches is this. I know this. The moment you walk out those doors, 90% of what I said falls out. It's gone. Spend time on it, and it's here and gone. You just get information here. And that's good. It's not going to change your life. You know what changes your life? Sitting in a circle... And people around you who you trust going, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you see this. But here's what we see. And when you sit in a circle, people can start asking you questions. What's going on with that relationship? What's going on with the struggle? Do you see how you're hurting people? Do you see the damage that your words are doing? Do you see how you're condemning them, but that action is also true in you? You need people to do that to you, and you need to do that to the people in that circle as well. That is how we grow. Your faith is personal, but it is never private. You need other people. That is why we spend so much time on putting together small groups. 
We put together life groups on Sunday. That's a circle. We want you to come into that circle and sit so people can ask you questions and get to know you. And so you can be a mirror and they can be a mirror to you. It's why we want you to sign up for home groups. I'll talk about both of those in the announcements. But we want you to sign up for a home group that's starting in a few weeks. So you'll sit around a living room and you'll read some scripture and then you'll talk about it and then you'll get to know one another and ask questions. And as you build trust, you can be a mirror and they can be a mirror. Your faith is personal, but it is not private. We spend a whole lot of time trying to get you into groups but it requires three things of you. And they are so simple, but they're not easy, but they're simple. Simple and easy are not the same thing. Ready? You'll be on the screen. Ready? One, go. You got to go to a group. Some of you need to get off the sidelines and actually get into the game. You've been sitting on the sidelines of Christian living and Christianity for a whole long time. It's time to get off the sideline, get in the game. Go. Two, be real. Be real. No one can help the fake you. If you fake it, we wouldn't know. Clean the outside of the cup. We don't know. We're not God. We can't help the fake you. Three, be consistent. In other words, you go to two groups. Oh, that group sucks. I'm never going to go back. Oh, please, you went twice. Be consistent. Give it time. You have to make those choices. Ultimately, it's all on you. Your faith is personal, but it's never private. Here's how the story ends with David, and we're done. 2 Samuel 12, 13. Then David said to Nathan, he just got blown up. How does he respond? David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. So simple. I sinned. You're right. Here's what David didn't do. He didn't get angry. You know, when somebody points something out to you and your first, your first response is anger, that's just another sin on your part. They're trying to help you. He didn't get angry. He didn't make excuses. He simply said, you're right. I have sinned against the Lord. And then here's what Nathan says. I sinned against the Lord, and Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. And even though, David, you said that one guy should die, here's the good news. You are not going to die. You want to know why the Lord took away his sin? Because he confessed. Quickly, Psalm 32. This is a poem David wrote about this whole experience. Ready? Psalm 32, 1 through 5. It'll be on the screen. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. In other words, don't you want this? This is David saying, don't you want it? Don't you want your sins to be covered? Don't you want to be forgiven? Don't you want to be set free from the daily struggle? I'm not going to do it, and then I keep doing it. Don't you want to be set free from that? This is the road to it. David said, here's the roadmap, verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. In other words, some of you have been running from God for an awfully long time, and you feel that. God's hand is heavy on you. And he is saying, come back to me. I'm trying to keep you from the mess that you're about to make. Come back to me. He says, I kept silent. I felt his hand. I kept running. I couldn't escape it. And finally, he does this. Ready? Then I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. I got forgiven because I confessed. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Verse 8 says this. If you say well, you're without sin, you're a liar. But if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of your unrighteousness. You confess to God. We're all about confessing to God because God doesn't tell our business around town. We'll get forgiven if we confess to God. But do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? 
Do you wanna be healed? James 5, 16, and I'm done. Therefore, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous man is both powerful and effective. You wanna be set free? There's a path to it. It's simple, not easy, but simple. Join a group. I don't care if it's with us or another church or the BSM or any other ministry. Join a group. Go, be real, be consistent. Jesus didn't die for the fake you and we can't help the fake you. If you wanna be free, freedom is here. Jesus offers it. It's a matter of going to him. Let me pray for us.